I would like to go on the record advocating for coffee drinking, though. Oh, yes. I'll go, I'll go on that record, too. Yeah. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Today, we are discussing fundamental belief number 22. Can you believe we've come this far? No, I can't. This one is called Christian Behavior. The real name of this doctrine, though, is more accurately the health message, or as you pointed out, Nikki, the bite model of mind control. Mm -hmm. This chapter has framed all of Ellen White's unbiblical 19th century ideas about health reform into a lifestyle mandate. She identifies the members of the remnant church by how well they follow this mandate. In fact, Adventism calls the health message the right arm of the gospel. Because Ellen White said, presenting these ideas about diet and lifestyle are the entering wedge that gets the attention of outsiders and attracts them to Adventists. And it softens their resistance and makes them more likely to accept Adventist beliefs. So two weeks ago, we talked about the Sabbath as the core doctrine identifying Adventism's worship. And it's the most identifying mark of Adventism to the public. I asked Richard today how he would characterize the health message compared to the Sabbath in identifying Adventists' faith and practice. And he said something really interesting. He said, if the health message is the right arm of the gospel, the Sabbath is the left arm. (laughs) In other words, these two things, Sabbath and the health message, are the practices that give Adventists their public identity. These produce... In Adventists, I'm speaking from experience, both pride and embarrassment, and they shout to the world, I have special revelation that you don't have. Come to me and I will help you find what I know. (laughs) But before we read this doctrine, I want to say we love hearing from you. Write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Go to proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly proclamation email magazine. And you can find links to our YouTube channel, to our online magazines and articles, and to this podcast too. You may donate using the donate tab there. And please, if you love this podcast, leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. And now, Nikki, I have a question. (laughs) Okay. Which part of the health message did you love as an Adventist? And which part felt the most entrapping? This feels like a hard question to me. You know, I've thought about it a little bit since you mentioned it earlier. And I think that it's the same thing. I felt special Mm -hmm. and trapped by our vegetarianism. I knew that anytime I went into an Adventist community, I'd find my people and my food. (laughs) We all had special K-loaf, right? Yeah. And we all knew what stripples were and fried chick and prime steak and (laughs) scallops, whatever. We Uh had our own food. And that was something that felt like community to me. And it was a place where I could eat and be filled. Whereas if I went out into the world and tried to eat, I couldn't be filled because it was so hard to find protein. It was harder to go out with non-Adventist friends. It was harder to eat with other mixed groups. So I felt both blessed Mm -hmm. in a way, 
by this vegetarianism and also trapped by it. It, mm-hmm. it separated me from the rest of the world. And I went to public school quite a lot growing up. And so I really did feel that separation. It kind of evokes feelings in mm-hmm. me when you say these things, because I felt that too. Even today, we all enjoy having haystacks. Yes. Right? It's one of our favorite meals. It is with some beef. Yeah, we had beef. <laughs> But we build them like haystacks. Yeah. So it was definitely a part of our culture and a part of that sense of community. Yeah. I remember too that I was attracted to meat. My mother had grown up the daughter of an Angus and wheat farmer in Saskatchewan. Uh, Her parents had come from Europe. And so she grew up with her parents actually raising and butchering their own meat. So she um, had a meat diet on the prairies of Saskatchewan, although she was Adventist. So she had kind of a taste for meat. My father was much more of the vegetarian type of Adventist, and he wanted my mom to have a vegetarian household. Primarily we were, but she would occasionally do the odd roast turkey for Thanksgiving if family was coming. And you know, I loved that. I loved that. And then I would feel guilty, and I'd think I was bringing cancer onto myself, and I would beg the Lord to forgive me for eating it. And then the next time it was there, I'd eat it again. And it was just like a spiraling disobedience that wasn't completely forbidden by the Bible, but it was pretty much forbidden by the prophet who said, anybody who is eating meat when the Lord comes will not be translated. You would have to die first. You couldn't go to heaven without dying if you were eating meat. So I knew I was hurting myself. And that was just always hanging over my head. But I was always attracted to it. So I didn't ever feel an attraction to meat. I don't recall feeling that. Um, Well, once in second grade, I had pepperoni and it was pretty great. I didn't know (laughs) what I was eating, but I didn't crave it. And so I will say that I felt the most trapped by the health message when I became a Christian. Interesting. And it became uh, problematic for me to not eat meat. My doctor told me, you need to start eating meat because I I had such a terrible vitamin D. B deficiency. I wasn't getting enough protein and getting older. Uh (laughs) My hormones needed those things. Uh And uh, so I had to learn how to eat meat. And that was when I realized that my vegetarianism was a spiritual matter for me. Right. Richard went through a similar thing. Many people have heard his story. It is a spiritual matter at the bottom line, especially when you grow up believing that meat is a sin or a near sin or simply not food. Well, and yeah, that was it for me. I didn't moralize meat eating and vegetarianism in my mind, at least not consciously. Mm -hmm. But I notice in this chapter, the writers refer to flesh food. They don't refer so much to meat. It's flesh food, clean and unclean flesh food. It gives the picture of roadkill. Honestly, that was kind of my feelings about it. It wasn't until I was trying to learn how to eat it that I realized I was turning my nose up at something God gave me, commanded me to eat, and designed my body to literally need. Try getting B vitamins, adequate B vitamins, without eating animal food. Richard said that when he was growing up and he and his brother would go to the grocery store with their mom, she would walk by the meat department and deliberately say, ew, look at that. Ew, how can people eat that? And that's exactly how Richard grew up thinking of it and how he taught his kids when they were very small. Yes, there is a strong emotional reaction to it. I kind of think it's like an aversion 
is something like an addiction, only the flip side of the coin. Mm -hmm. It's irrational. It's not based on fact. It's based on strong emotional imprinting. And it is as hard to overcome an aversion as it is to overcome an addiction. And I've watched that with former Adventists. I watched it with my husband, and it was a spiritual issue for him. He had to pray through it mm-hmm. and hold himself accountable. Yeah, he helped me through it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was the first one to give me ham. And it was an Easter Sunday, and I have to tell you, I ate that little bit of ham, and the first thought that came to my mind is, they have lied. They have yes. lied. Not only because it's delicious, uh-huh. but because they know what it tastes like. Yes. Their fake meat really does work to mimic yes. the real thing. I've thought of that often. How on earth would they even know how to season <laughs> that stupid soy stuff if they didn't know what it tasted like? So <sighs> yeah, you're right. I also remember the time years ago when Richard and I first had oysters, now that we didn't eat them raw. I'm very repulsed by the thought of a raw oyster even still. (laughs) But they were cooked and roasted and they had garlic and butter and they're on little pieces of toast and they were amazing. And that was my first words. They lied to us. (laughs) These things are delicious. (laughs) So Nikki, why don't we read the doctrine? So again, it's fundamental belief 22, Christian behavior. We are called to be a godly people who think, feel, and act in harmony with biblical principles in all aspects of personal and social life. For the Spirit to recreate in us the character of our Lord, we involve ourselves only in those things that will produce Christ-like purity, health, and joy in our lives. This means that our amusement and entertainment should meet the highest standards of Christian taste and beauty. While recognizing the cultural differences, our dress is to be simple, modest, and neat, befitting those whose true beauty does not consist of outward adornment, but in the imperishable ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit. It also means that because our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, we are to care for them intelligently. Along with adequate exercise and rest, we are to adopt the most healthful diet possible and abstain from unclean foods identified in the scriptures. Since alcoholic beverages, tobacco, and the irresponsible use of drugs and narcotics are harmful to our bodies, we are to abstain from them as well. Instead, we are to engage in whatever brings our thoughts and bodies into the discipline of Christ, who desires our wholesomeness, joy, and goodness. There is nothing here that says what God desires is for us to trust the Son. It makes me think of Psalm 2, the prophecy that David wrote, where it actually says where God is saying, kiss the Son. That was a prophecy before Jesus even came. There's nothing hinting at Jesus in here in terms of how we are to relate to him. This is all, God wants you to be good. So what rings a bell for you here, Nikki? Oh, this is so frustrating. You know, um, this should not be a doctrinal statement. Right. It's manipulative. And (laughs) it's laughable to Mm -hmm. think that Seventh-day Adventists believe they have a unique message that you're not supposed to do drugs, get drunk, (laughs) dress like immorally or any of those things. These things are not unique to Seventh-day Adventists, but they 
use these ideas, they use these concepts to manipulate and they infuse them with new definitions and new meaning. They leave off in their doctrinal statement that the average person will read when they go online that you're not supposed to have coffee. You're not supposed to have tea. Exactly. You're not supposed to go to a movie theater. You're not supposed to play cards or dance. All of that's off of this, but it is not off the table. No, exactly. And I just thought while you were reading this, Nikki, you actually look like you're dressed quite simply modestly and neatly today, Nikki, befitting someone whose true beauty is inner. I would say all that's true of you, but you have a beautiful necklace. Just saying. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you fit that in? (laughs) They take the texts they want to take and they make it say what they want it to say so that they can control their members. That's the bottom line. This is a control doctrine. And another point that's really significant is that this comes after introducing Ellen the Alligator. (laughs) We are pulled into the deep end. Her talent of the Sabbath goes in and pins us to the bottom of the pool. Mm -hmm. And then all of these other doctrines enwrap us and entrap us in her worldview. And it's very hard to decipher and to get out of because it's intricate. It weaves around us and it uses scripture to nail the point home. And it's just a sin. That's interesting that you said that. As I was reading this chapter, I just kept thinking, this is the bite model. This is the behavior control. And I went and I looked up undue influence because that was something that really jumped off the website to me. When I first read it, I'm like, that was my experience in Adventism. And one of the things they say is once recruits have bought into the initial promises and hype, so in this context, we are the remnant church, we have a three angels message, we have to get out to the world, we are the ones who see the Sabbath, we're going to restore that to Christianity, we have a great work to do. They've bought into that, and and that's going to stick them in the 144,000 if they do it right. Mm-hmm. They are incrementally introduced into a systematic method of control, one small step at a time. This methodical system of control undue influence, disrupts the person's authentic identity, and reconstructs a new identity in the image of the group or their leader. There you go. In the process, an individual's ability to think rationally and act independently is undermined, enslaving even the brightest, educated, and most functional people. So if you're listening to this and you're saying, I have Adventist friends, they're doctors, they're businessmen, they're really smart. It can't really be all that. They wouldn't fall for that. Well, yeah, you know what? Everyone falls for it when they're brainwashed. Exactly. It doesn't matter your education level. No, No, that brainwashing piece is the key. This is built on a false worldview. And I want to take us back to what we've said all through this series and before, that Ellen White has a different story of origin. She starts in heaven before creation with Jesus and Lucifer being essentially on a similar playing field and God exalting Jesus and Lucifer becoming jealous and a great controversy ensuing in which we created beings are going to help poor Jesus, who was exalted to the position of son, but has suffered unmercifully at the hands of Lucifer, we're going to help him win. And we're going to vindicate the Ten Commandments, which of course existed in heaven before creation. That's a completely false worldview. And yet one of them was created at creation. 
Oh, so both exactly. are true at the same time. Right. Sabbath was created at creation, and the law existed before creation. It's all very crazy-making, double-speak, very characteristic of the dynamics in an abusive family where children are taught two different things at the same time, and it required to hold conflicting ideas in their heads as if they're both truth. That's what this religion does. And I think that's why so many people, when they leave Adventism, feel like they're losing their identity. Because you are. Because Adventism has to be your identity if you're Adventist. That's right. And it does destroy your ability to think rationally and to ask those questions. How can the Ten Commandments be eternal? And yet, there were only nine until creation week. Those questions don't come up. I remember so clearly years ago, maybe 20, when I had a really dear friend who was a very, very bright woman. She was an educator. And we would meet regularly and chat. She knew as we started to leave Adventism and when we left, she knew. And I told her why. I told her what I was discovering. And I could tell she was compelled. She was curious. She wanted to hear. And then I remember her saying, well, when I retire, I will look into it. And she actually said the words, I figure brighter minds than mine have figured this out, and they understand it, and I'll just let it go until I retire. Well, she did eventually retire, and she didn't look into it. It's the default position, like you said. All of the Adventists I know are brilliantly educated people, but when you have a false worldview and you don't know it's false, it comes in with your mother's milk. Mm -hmm. You learn from childhood that Jesus could have failed. It's like learning the color of the sky is green when it's really blue, but you're taught that that color is green. Mm -hmm. And how would you know? You know, what I want to say to people like that, I was one of those. I, I said those same words, brighter minds than mine. But the thing is, truth is not confusing. And if we remove all of the emotional hurdles, and there are many, to leaving Adventism, and we just look at the details of how you leave Adventism... This is not hard, you guys. They gave us so much information that they could not back up and make obvious to us because it had no evidence. And so all we could do was think, well, this is really confusing, but they figured this out somehow. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that evidence doesn't exist. It's not there. That's why you're confused. Truth is simple. Yeah. I saw the truth just by reading Galatians. We got an email yesterday, which we've been talking about some this morning, and I just want to read a little passage from it. This person has been Adventist, is a bright person, a professional educator, and he says this summer, he's been actually listening to our podcasts where we actually address the doctrines and the issues of the Adventist worldview, and he said, I had never more than glanced at the phrase born again. I realize now that the Holy Spirit has been working on me for years, but without the new birth, I was simply unable to move forward. Some of my Bible versions say that without the new birth, we cannot enter the kingdom of God, while others say that without the new birth, we cannot see the kingdom of God. I like both ways of saying it because I believe them both. I couldn't see to make the New Testament make sense. But once I prayed, repenting, 
believing in his finished work and directly asking to be reborn. It all just happened. And I had no idea I could be this alive. (laughs) My guilt is gone. My appetites have changed. I'm no longer forcing myself to act good. I just don't know how to describe it. But I do know that I have never met an Adventist who has gone through what I have in that moment because if they had, they would never go back. I'm free, and he is free to do what he will in, with, and through me. You weren't kidding about the crying part. I'm a mess. <laughs> Praise that God. Praise that is God. absolutely amazing. It makes me think of uh, Third Day has a song called Born Again that was on the radio a lot when I was born again. And I would just get so excited because they describe, it's like you feel like you're moving and you're breathing and you're seeing for the first time. Absolutely. It's, it's pretty incredible. I'm very happy for him. And it's real and it doesn't go away. And it was not because he figured out that Daniel 7 chart. No. <laughs> no. No, it isn't. It's because he turned away from the Daniel 7 chart and looked to Jesus yes. and his finished work. And did you notice that he said his tastes have changed? Mm-hmm. That really jumped out at me. And as I've been reading this chapter, it's like, good grief. This is all about how to force your tastes into their model. This is about how to force your tastes of what you eat and what you wear and what you think and what you read and what you watch into their model. But when you know Jesus, he changes you from the inside. These things are not issues. This reminds me of when I was a little girl, I used to pray that God would make me good and he would not make me good. I just (laughs) couldn't get good. And I realize now it's because that was never his intention. His intention was to give me life. And when he gave me life, he gave me himself. And he himself changes what I want and helps me see what's true. You know, and we cannot make a mistake here and think that when they tell us in this chapter that these behaviors have nothing to do with salvation, that they mean that. That's just chaff. That's Adventist chaff. That's going to get blown away. That's like questions on doctrine. (laughs) They don't mean that. No. They're just saying that. It's right here in the fundamental belief that in order for the Spirit to recreate in us the character of our Lord, we involve ourselves only in those things that will produce Christ-like purity, Uh, health, and joy. And then this whole chapter tells us step-by-step how to do that. And that's absolutely upside down and backwards from the Bible. We do not create our Christ-like purity. He gives us himself, imputes his righteousness to us, and then teaches us, as Paul puts it, to say no to ungodliness. He teaches us that, and it becomes something we desire to do, not something we have to fight ourselves to do. And it's in his time. It's not for me to decide the areas of someone else's life that need to be taken care of. He does it in his timing. And we trust the people that we love to God for him to work in. Right. I just want to say before we get into the chapter, last week we talked about tithe (laughs) and money and having integrity, not giving money to an institution that teaches these things, whether or not your local congregation does In the chapter last week, they said that part of giving is for the church to operate and to set up health ministry work, that this demonstrates the practical significance of the gospel. So what we talk about today is what your tithe money is funding. This is what Ellen White called the right arm of the gospel, 
and the entering wedge. This is the manipulative tool to get unsuspecting people to come to Adventists for answers because Adventists promise that they can reverse their heart disease, reverse their diabetes, reverse their overweight, and give them good health, longer life, better lifestyle, better quality of life, all through what you eat, drink, think, and wear. And they eliminate the freedom of conscience according to the work of the Spirit in each individual believer. In the first section, under behavior and salvation, they say when each member follows his or her own conscience, there is no mutual disciplining of fellow Christians in keeping with Matthew 18 and Galatians 6, 1 and 2. The church becomes not the body of Christ within which there is mutual love and care, but a collection of atomistic individuals, each of whom goes his or her own way without taking any responsibility for one's fellows or accepting any concern for them. So here they say it is unbiblical. It's not biblical. It doesn't keep with Galatians. It doesn't keep with Matthew 18 for a member to follow their own conscience. It's crazy talk. It's setting them up to set their opinions aside and to accept what greater minds than them are going to lay out for them in the rest of the chapter. And it works because they use proof texts out of context and they highly guilt you along with it. Like, if you're not doing this, you're not developing your Christian character, you're not trusting Jesus, you're not thankful, you're not, you're not a good person, mm-hmm. in essence. And then they lead with their physicalism. Exactly. They say Christians then practice good health habits to protect the command center of their body temples, the mind, the dwelling place of the Spirit of Christ. So there are two things here. The Spirit dwells in your brain and... They say the Spirit of Christ because the Holy Spirit, in their mind, is the Spirit of Christ. It's the only way that Jesus can be omnipresent. This is, again, a nod to their Godhead, their anti-Trinitarian views of the Holy Spirit. And that part about the Holy Spirit dwelling in the mind underlies the entire framework of Adventist theology and salvation. They see the literal physical brain as the place where the Holy Spirit informs the person. Now, of course, our minds are informed by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. Romans 12, 2 is very clear that we're to renew our minds. But this is speaking to people who've already been born again, who have already had the experience of this man that wrote to us, who repented, trusted Jesus' finished work, accepted him as his Savior, and asked to be his. And The Lord changes us. Now, that is something Adventists just don't understand. They'll hear the words, Jesus will change you, the Holy Spirit will change you, but somehow it's all dependent on this will happen if if they're obedient. But no, this is something the Lord does when we believe. John 5, 24, look up the texts, Ephesians 1, 12 and 13. John 6, 29, the work of God is to believe him whom he sent. Acts 16, 31, what shall I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And he changes us. So we have spirits that are born dead in sin, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. We have to be made alive, which is what God does when we trust Jesus, Ephesians 2, 4 to 9. You can look up these texts. You can read it. It's very clear. It's not confusing. But the fact is, we are not just our bodies. And the Holy Spirit indwells our spirits and gives us new life, gives us new purpose, gives us new power. 
God gives us the life of Jesus when we trust Jesus. He gives us his resurrection life. The life that raised him from the dead raises us from the dead. I don't know how to explain it, but it's what the Bible says, and it works. This is what makes us image bearers. Exactly. God is spirit, and he created us with spirits. He didn't give spirits to the animals. No. He created us with spirits that connect to his life. That's right. So their focus on the body being the temple of the Holy Spirit, to be sure, Paul says that our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. But Adventism takes that down a trail that the Bible doesn't take it. Adventism takes that down the trail of because we are the temple where the Holy Spirit lives in our brains— that's the subtext in our brains. We have to keep our bodies healthy so our brains are healthy. We have to eat right. We have to think right. We have to read right. And what the Bible says is this, we are the temples of the Holy Spirit, but that assertion is in the context of not defiling the temple with sexual immorality. And you can see this in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. And Paul writes about it, and he makes it really, really clear that when we as believers who have been born again unite ourselves to somebody other than our wife or our husband, and he uses the illustration here of a prostitute, if you take a member of Christ, which is one of the people in the body of Christ, unite that member of Christ to a prostitute, you become one with her. And then he says this. It's so interesting because it's very different from what Adventism teaches. He said, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. And now here's this. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You're bought with a price. Adventists illegitimately take that passage and they insert food (laughs) into it. And Paul right there says, every other sin, and he names many sins in the New Testament. But I would say, even if there were a food sin, and Paul's pretty clear that food isn't one of the big sins, but even if it were, that would be outside the body. It's an indictment against the way Adventists teach the health message. Well, what you're describing is exactly what Jesus said. It's what comes out of the heart that makes a person clean or unclean. He said food comes in and it's expelled. And he declared all foods clean in Mark seven nineteen. The Adventists don't know how to deal with that. No, it's really interesting. We were talking about this before we did the podcast, Nikki. And we realized the only place where they mention Mark seven nineteen, where Jesus declared all foods clean, is in a footnote. It's buried in footnote number 27, which is, I have to say, of the 34 footnotes on this chapter, one of the very longest ones, and they try to explain it away. They talk about, you know, what enters the heart is what makes us unclean, but they actually say Jesus did not change the distinction between clean and unclean food. They say that in the footnote. Well, that's just not true. So we decided to check it with the clear word. And in the clear word, they leave that section out. Could you read that for us, uh, Mark 7, 18 and 19, out of the real Bible? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this is an NASB. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. 
Here's what the clear word says. He said to them, you mean that you don't understand what I just said to the people? Can't you see that whatever goes into a man from the outside, like dirt from his unwashed hands, cannot make him morally unclean? It doesn't affect his relationship with God because it goes into his stomach, passes through his intestines, and then out of his body. The end. They leave out. Thus he declared all foods clean. But the way they talk about it inside, internally, is this. Jesus declared all foods clean. He didn't declare unclean food to be food. So he may have declared all foods clean, but that doesn't include pork, shellfish, and stuff like that. Because that's not food, of course, don't you know? And they were very specific about dirt on the hands. Yeah. Your dirty hands won't make what you eat dirty. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So they don't even use the text right. And it's a footnote at best in this chapter. So there's so much biblical evidence that they're just ignoring because they have to be true to the prophet who set these rules down. And again, even their proof text out of Leviticus is not applicable to the conversation. They're not taking into consideration that that was written for Israel. That was not written for the church. No. And you know, I learned as an Adventist that those laws given to Israel were for health reasons. Mm -hmm. That was just about health reasons. Pigs aren't clean. Shellfish aren't clean. They're bottom feeders. They completely ignore the fact that A, God wanted Israel to be separate from the Gentiles. And you can't eat the food of the Gentiles if you're going to be separate from them. He wanted to keep them separate because he was bringing the Messiah through Israel. And he was fulfilling his promises to Abraham through the means of Israel. They couldn't intermingle and start worshiping the pagan gods. And if they had table fellowship with the Gentiles, what would stop them from blurring all of their identity and blurring their worship practices? So that was what was behind the food laws, literal ritual ideas of cleanliness and partition. And they don't deal with Peter and his vision with the sheet. They, they don't deal with the New Testament instructions for the Gentile church that never tell them to be vegetarian. They're just not supposed to eat animals with blood in them. And they did bring up that X10 vision in that same footnote, following the Mark 7 thing. The average reader would never see it, but they explain it away the way I was explained it, the way it was explained to me as a child in Adventist school. Oh, that vision of Peter with the sheet, with the animals, that wasn't about eating unclean food. Even though God said, kill and eat three times, and the sheet was filled with all manner of unclean animals and birds. The fact is, they explain it by saying that was just about people. Peter couldn't call the Gentiles unclean anymore. He had to know that God was saying the Gentiles were clean and they were going to be evangelized. But here's the deal. He meant the food too. Yeah. Because Peter was forbidden by the law to go into the home of a Gentile. And Cornelius was sent by God to get him. When he came out of that vision, Cornelius's three messengers were waiting for him and took Peter and some other Jewish men with him. And they went to the home of Cornelius and stayed several days. Now, what were they going to eat? (laughs) They were going to eat Gentile food. Mm -hmm. And God had let him know he had to do that. You can't have communion with a Gentile and not eat the Gentile food. And God was saying, don't you call any of that unclean. The restrictions are gone because he broke down that barrier on the cross. 
Ephesians 2.14, Colossians 2.14. He nailed those laws of ordinances to the cross and made one new man out of the Jews and Gentiles in his flesh as he nailed the partition wall, which was the law, to the cross. That's not dealt with in this chapter. No, it's not. And in the Old Testament, it was all about the nation. And after Christ resurrected, it became about the nations. He sent his disciples to all the nations with the good news. And so all of those things that separated us are gone and we're one new people. And there's nothing separating us. And you know, another thing they do here that really bothered me, they talk about the fact that after the flood, God allowed meat. But they make a case for the fact that it was only clean meat, of course. God wouldn't have given them anything else. They even reference Genesis 9, 3 to 5, where Noah comes out of the ark. And they say, only after the flood did God introduce flesh as food. With all vegetation destroyed, God gave Noah and his family permission to eat flesh foods, stipulating that they were not to eat the blood in the meat. And another stipulation scripture implies that God gave Noah was that he and his family were to eat only what God identified as clean animals. It was because Noah and his family needed the clean animals for food as well as sacrifices that God instructed Noah to take seven pairs of each kind of clean animal in contrast to only one pair of each kind of un clean with him into the ark. You had a reaction to that, Nikki. I had several reactions to that. That was a very frustrating section to read. So first of all, with all vegetation destroyed, let's just (laughs) stop there for a minute. How on earth did that dove bring back an olive branch if all vegetation was destroyed? And how long were they in that ark after the water had already receded? And what were the animals supposed to eat? who came off of the ark, were they just going to devour each other until they weren't there anymore? Nikki, are you just trying to make trouble? (laughs) These are very troubling questions. They make these assumptions that you trust, you read, these people are greater minds, right? Mm -hmm. And oh, all the vegetation was destroyed. Yeah, that makes sense. Of course, that's the only reason he gave them the animals to eat. Now, I have to tell you, one of the arguments I heard as I was leaving Adventism is that God gave Noah the animals to eat because he was going to shorten their years. And he knew that flesh food would destroy the life and people would die younger. Mm -hmm. But we know, because of Ellen, a workaround. We can go back to the Garden of Eden and eat like they did, and then we'll show God we're going to live longer than everybody else. They actually say that. They don't say we we know better than God, but they imply it. But they do. I mean, what else is that? God said to do this and he's going to try, he's going to kill us this way, but we're going to do it the other way because it's better. Yeah. Number one, it doesn't say God gave the meat to shorten their lives. He did shorten their lives. He said their years would only be 120. He was tired of dealing with, (laughs) he said that. That I'm tired of dealing with their sin Mm. and their lives will only be 120 years instead of the hundreds of years that they had been in the pre-flood era. Mm -hmm. And I think, as I think about it, I think, you know, think about what mischief we could accomplish if our lives were hundreds of years long. We could develop an idea and run with it and there'd be no continuity problem there. Mm -hmm. You know, we wouldn't have to worry that somebody else might not pick up the torch and finish it the way we wanted. We could accomplish any amount of mischief. The other thing is that Genesis 9, it's very specific what God gave. 
When Noah came out of the ark, God said to him, this is Genesis 9, 3 and 4, every moving thing that is alive, I'm saying that very slowly on purpose so nobody misses the words, (laughs) every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. God also told Noah in this chapter that he was going to put the fear of man in the animals. So it was an interesting thing that God was giving everything that moves. Now think about that. That's not just the cows. It doesn't even only mean the pigs and the cows. Mm -hmm. It includes insects, reptiles, birds, fish. Every single thing that climbed off that ark, whether it was considered clean or unclean, everything. And then God put the fear of man into the animals, which apparently hadn't been there before. It was not a provision that was to lead to sport killing. Mm -hmm. You know, this was giving the animals a fighting chance. Man would have to work for his food and the animals wouldn't be sitting duck victims. They would have a way to protect themselves too from indiscriminate men. It was a very merciful provision. And I just have to say, God would not do something like that if it was bad for humanity. The flood made a completely different world. We don't know what the world was like before the flood, but clearly the fact that God gave meat and that meat was part of the Levitical system of sacrifices, it was Jesus ate meat, Jesus ate fish, even in his glorified body. This provision of meat was for humanity on a post-flood world. It was his provision not his curse. Well, and you know, the other thing I've heard related to that is that, well, that meat, that food back then, that was organic. So now we have all kinds of scientific interventions and pesticides, and we know that meat is going to make you sick and all of that. So they remove it from the moral atmosphere. But there are two narratives going on in this chapter. They do try to make an argument for not eating meat, making you healthier. Right. But they also say, whatever weakens your reason impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, decreases the strength and authority of your mind over your body. That thing is wrong. However innocent it may be in itself. They're quoting actually the mother of the founder of Methodism when they write that. And they're saying that your healthful lifestyle is going to determine your ability to have a tender conscience and to sense God. You know, these ideas didn't just spring out of the ether, as people used to say. These things actually came into Adventism through Ellen White. First of all, I want to make a reference If any of you have not read Cheryl Granger's amazingly researched and cited article, The Seventh-day Adventist Health Message from Where Did It Come? Go online and read it. It's in the spring 2015 edition of Proclamation. And if you go to proclamationmagazine.com and just do a search for The Seventh-day Adventist Health Message, you will find it. It will come up. It is extremely well cited, and she documents that Ellen White, in spite of the fact that we were all told her health message was a vision from God, her influences were not all her visions. They included the health reformers of her day. She was heavily influenced by John Harvey Kellogg's Health Institute. She was influenced by other 
health and lifestyle movers and shakers of her period. She was even influenced by the lifestyle ideas of Helen Blavatsky, who led the theosophy movement. She was not in a vacuum. Ellen White did not just have a vision from God and get all of these ahead of her time ideas. She very firmly reflected the ideas of her time. Now, do they attribute their new research to her as well? No, that's different. Their new research, like their Adventist health studies, they would probably not attribute to her. But the fact is, it's sponsored research. Their Adventist health study is sponsored research. And their ideas about health reform from Ellen White are like the hidden presupposition on which their research is based. Because the Adventist health study, for example, um, has released a lot of data, supposedly data, that has led to things such as forming the idea of Loma Linda being part of what they call the Blue Zones. The National Geographic made this quite popular a few years ago, and Loma Linda is a Blue Zone area where people live exceptionally long lives because they buy the Adventist lifestyle message. They tend to be vegetarian, they exercise, they worship, they have lots of sunshine and rest and air. The fact is, Richard actually spoke with a person who was in the Adventist Health Study several years ago who admitted that any cross-section of middle-class Americans, because that's where we're located and that's where Loma Linda's located, middle-class Americans who don't smoke and who drink only moderately, any cross-section like that will have the same lifestyle advantage of an Adventist. I attribute my Hashimoto's to my vegetarianism, and and that's not just a personal feeling. That's something that I've read a lot of material about. So I would even go a step further and say that their processed vegetarian meats and their high cholesterol casseroles uh, do contribute to unhealthful eating. It's really just about temperance. And all truth belongs to God. Yeah. And God told us not to get drunk, and He gave us water to drink, and He gave us the sunshine. They act as if they have a corner on all of these things in this chapter. They talk about the blessing of water, the blessing of fresh air, the blessing of a temperate, drug-free, (laughs) stimulant-free living. It was very frustrating to see them write about this in a doctrinal statement, as if this is something that they have learned in their long Adventist history. Yes. They say that Seventh-day Adventists throughout their history of the past 150 years have stressed the importance of proper health habits. This isn't just theirs. That's right. I almost had to laugh if it weren't so sad. This quote, this little quote she has um, taken out of a paragraph from CTBH, page 34. She says, um, those who use... Notice how she groups this. Those who use tea, coffee, opium, and alcohol may sometimes live to old age, but this fact is no argument in favor of the use of these stimulants. She sees tea and coffee as a gateway drug to opium and alcohol. She didn't know about cocaine. She didn't know about some of the things we have today, but she did know about opium, and she put right in there with coffee. I believe you have a quote, Colleen, that talks about how the Holy Spirit cannot rest on those who use these things. This is in her book, Councils on Diets and Foods. God cannot let his Holy Spirit rest upon those who, while they know how they should eat for health, persist in a course that will enfeeble mind and body. 
I had to laugh earlier, Nikki, because you said, you know, nobody today would advocate smoking. We all know, everybody knows the dangers of smoking, the carcinogenic characteristics of smoking. Mm -hmm. But when you think about how Ellen White framed it, smoking, drinking, coffee, opium, and you think Martin Luther and his beer, she loved Martin Luther. She considered him a hero of Christianity. But she didn't talk about the fact that he married a nun who became a Christian who ran a business making good beer. And Martin Luther would often speak with his colleagues over beer. And Spurgeon, that we know, the great preacher, the great preacher who smoked and drank beer. It's not that God will not let his Holy Spirit rest on people who do these things. His Holy Spirit comes to those who trust Jesus. Mm-hmm. These things do not keep us out of heaven. These things do not keep us from being born again. And please do not hear me advocating the use of tobacco, alcohol, or any drug in excess. I'm just saying Ellen White presents it wrongly. I would like to go on the record advocating for coffee drinking, though. Oh, yes. I'll go, I'll go on that record, too. Yeah. You know, Ellen White was pretty thorough in her list of behaviors that would limit Christian character and keep us from achieving salvation. She even talked about how we used our time. She says this, Every man's work passes in review before God. Now, this is actually a reference to his supposed work in the investigative judgment. But every man's work passes in review before God and is registered for faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Opposite each name in the books of heaven is entered with terrible exactness. Every wrong word, every selfish act, every unfulfilled duty, and every secret sin, with every artful dissembling, heaven-sent warnings or reproofs neglected, wasted moments, unimproved opportunities, the influence exerted for good or for evil with its far-reaching results, all are chronicled by the recording angel. The record of wasted moments and unimproved opportunities must be met when the judgment shall sit and the books shall be opened and everyone shall be judged according to the things written in the books. Look at the compulsion and mental illness that creates in people. Absolutely. You're not only concerned about what you're doing, you're concerned about what you're not doing. And you're concerned about how much time you're spending doing and not doing. It becomes very neurotic. Oh, yes. I used to sit in my classroom in junior high and look out the window and think. And then I'd remember, I'm not supposed to daydream. It's a sin to daydream. It's a sin to let my mind wander. And I'd pull myself back to the classroom. But sometimes I'd have thoughts that I really wanted to finish, you know, but I thought it was a sin. That's called thought control. And that's also found in the bite model. Good point. In this, they talk about the movies you watch, the television you watch, the radio you listen to. And of course, they leave space in there for the really good things and the positive things that can come out of that because they have a huge investment (laughs) in radio and television broadcasting. This is one of the ways that they will indoctrinate and propagate their message to the masses, churchgoers or not. They don't care. Just send your tithe. In fact, Paul Cardin says that Adventism is second only to Jehovah's Witnesses in publishing. The numbers, the multiple languages in which they publish, especially in print, but also in media, television, internet, they are masters 
of digital and print communication. They also say that Christ followers will shun any melody partaking of the nature of jazz, rock, or related hybrid forms, or any language expressing foolish or trivial sentiments. A Christian does not listen to music with suggestive lyrics or melodies. (laughs) One of the things that actually surprised me was their correction about what you read. Now, I knew that Ellen White didn't promote fiction, but they say here, the tales of wild adventure and of moral laxness, whether fact or fiction, however presented, are unfit for Christians of any age. And I want to say, how do you read the Bible? Exactly. How do you educate children? How do you teach history? How do you believe Ellen White herself? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Who borrowed quite a bit of material from Milton's Paradise Lost. She even wrote... If the intellectual and moral tastes have been perverted by overwrought and exciting tales of fiction so that there is a disinclination to apply the mind, there is a battle to be fought to overcome this habit. I have watched those whose taste for fiction was thus cultivated. They have had the privilege of listening to the truth, of becoming acquainted with the reasons for our faith, but they have grown to maturer years, destitute of true piety and practical godliness. Nikki, that's all because of fiction. (laughs) It's not because of not trusting Jesus. It's because of what you put into your head, what you put into your mouth, what you put on your face. She wrote against cosmetics. Yeah. She definitely wrote against jewelry. She even said that many are ignorantly injuring their health and endangering their life by using cosmetics. They're robbing the cheeks of the glow of health and then, to supply the deficiency, use cosmetics. And when they become heated in the dance, (laughs) the poison is absorbed by the pores of the skin and is thrown into the blood. Many lives have been sacrificed by this means alone. Blush. No more blush, Nikki. (laughs) Probably anyone who doesn't know Adventism could listen to this and think, yeah, if you read anybody from that era, you're going to find some really weird things. But I want to remind them, this is a prophetess who said that her writings will live all the way through to the end and will be what gets people through the last day when they no longer have the intercession of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. And Adventists believe this. They believe that she is authoritative. Only recently did they change their writing in their Fundamental Belief 18. They used to say she was a continuing and authoritative source of truth. They still believe that. Absolutely. But they've needed to reword it. To prophetic authority. And there's really no difference in the meaning. Right. She's essentially scripture. She is. You know, one of the reasons that it's so important that everybody clean it up, not eat and drink those things, and not watch or listen to the other things, whatever list they have here in this chapter becomes the roadmap to salvation. And they will say that's not true, but it is true. Ellen White said, the work of gaining salvation is one of co-partnership a joint operation. There is to be cooperation between God and the repentant sinner. This is necessary for the formation of right principles in the character. Man is to make earnest efforts to overcome that which hinders him from attaining to perfection, Mm. but he is wholly dependent upon God for success. Human effort of itself is not sufficient. Without the aid of divine power, it avails nothing. This is from AA 482.2. She also says, God has elected a certain excellence of character, 
and everyone who, through the grace of Christ, shall reach the standard of his requirement will have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of glory. That's from CE 118.1. And I have another one here that says, Now the way is open for the believer in Jesus Christ to obtain that high state of Christian perfection that will ensure eternal life. The plan of salvation is settled forever. It's all about cooperating with God, refining your character, and then the way of salvation will be open to you. Well, importantly, as we think about this chapter, which is actually a doctrinal statement, I have to mention that again, Nikki, like you pointed out earlier, whoever heard of these things being a doctrinal statement for a church, their fundamental underlying belief that the Holy Spirit, God Almighty, communicates with us, as this book says, only through our minds. And they say, it is well to remember that alcohol adversely affects every function of the mind. And then they go on to talk about how alcohol affects the mind, how food affects the mind, how rest and all of these healthful living principles affect the mind. And it's all because they have to keep their mind healthy because they deny the existence of spirit. So sin for an Adventist is centered in thoughts, mind, It's not centered in being born, depraved, dead in sin. It's all about decisions. It's all about knowing special knowledge, knowing what to do so that you can help God make you good. This is why they require specific behavior from their adherents. They will not let you join the Seventh-day Adventist church while you are misbehaving. If you're smoking, quit. If you're drinking, quit. They say at the end of this chapter... As a church organization, we have set certain lifestyle standards as minimal requirements for becoming members. These standards include abstention from tobacco, alcoholic beverages, mind-altering chemicals, unclean flesh foods, and a growing Christian experience in matters of dress and the use of leisure time. These minimal standards do not comprehend all of God's ideal for the believer. They simply signify essential first steps in developing a growing, radiant Christian experience. Such standards also provide the foundation essential to unity within the community of believers. These are first steps. Pay attention to that because we're talking about cultic practices. Mm This is just what they're revealing to you right now. It will go much deeper and further. It's important to remember that this doctrinal statement on Christian behavior sounds pretty good. A lot of Christians would agree with a lot of the things that are stated here, but the underlying assumption is different. For Christians, these kinds of behaviors seem natural to a person who has been born again, because like the writer of that email I earlier read said, our tastes are changed when the Holy Spirit makes us alive through (laughs) faith in Jesus. But when you're not alive, when you think that you have to make your behavior get in line with the revelations of a false prophet in order to become righteous, to become sanctified, and to become worthy of being saved, then you have a different foundational belief. Your behavior will never prepare you to meet the Lord, ever. And that is why, in closing, I want to reiterate, if you have not recognized the biblical fact that you are born by nature a child of wrath, that no matter how good, how much you try, how much you pray that God will make you good, that will not suffice. Like the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Or the Jews to Jesus, what is the work of God? 
And it was Jesus who said, the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. And Paul said to the jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is how we're saved. It's all a work of God. Jesus died a sinless, perfect human death for our sin. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. He broke the curse of sin. He broke the curse of death into which all of us were born. And when we repent of our natural sin, of our sins that we have done, when we recognize that there's no hope for us apart from Jesus, and we bow before his cross and repent and ask him to be our Lord, to be our Savior, to forgive our sin, he will. And he will make you new. He will make you born again. He will adopt you. He will give you his Holy Spirit. And your life will never be the same. You'll know what it means to be a child of God. If you have questions or comments for us, please write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com and visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly emails containing new online articles each week. You can like us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And join us next week as we read Fundamental Belief 23 on marriage and the family. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.